0: Stop the tick, please. We Are Weezer episode 49. I'm your host, Rachel, and today I am joined by a very, very special guest. Uh, but before the big reveal, let me tell you a little bit about the show. We Are Weezer is a podcast about Weezer. And we have two different types of episodes. We have a song review episode where a guest host and I scour the internet to find details and fun facts on your favorite Weezer songs. We give you all the details, review it, and rate it using our special rating system. And we have perfect situations where we'll do Weezer news guest interviews, Weezer stories, or the history behind a Weezer mark, which is a Weezer Latin mark. We'll talk about an album release and whatever else is going on. So without further ado, today we are very honored to have a very special guest, the OG original first guitarist for Weezer, <laughs> Jason Cropper. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. How are you?
1: I'm fine, Rachel. How are you?
0: I am great. Uh, Very, very excited to have you. We have a lot of questions. Are are you ready to get going?
1: It's great to be here. Let's do it.
0: Okay. We'll be right back. My name is Joey.
1: Thanks for all you've shown us. This is how we
0: feel. Come sit next to me for yourself some tea. Just like grandma made when you couldn't find something. Things were better then once would never again. All right, so welcome back. Here we are with Jason Cropper. And I'm just going to jump in and we'll, you know, if we have conversations that's cool too so in your own words tell me the Weezer story like how how did it come about
1: um, Wow well let's see uh, from my perspective I was uh, living in Northern California in uh, the city of Santa Rosa and I had um, graduated high school and it was 1990 1989 1990 1991 while I was living there and I had kind of made up my mind like, Oh, I think I'm going to just play music. I'm going to figure out a way to do that. And, um, I'm going to not go to college I'll work, but I'm just going to focus on, you know, maybe I'll go to community college. I'll work part time, but I'm going to play in a band and I want to see what can happen there. And, um, so I was living my little, you know, kind of suburban Californian life Trying to play with different bands and learn how to be a, not so, you know, a better musician, not be a bad musician. And there was a kid who um, was a mutual friend. I had a friend named Jesse, and he was introducing me to people in the local scene in this little community up in Sonoma County. And I had been saying, I want to meet a, a bass player. I want to meet somebody who can really play the heck out of the bass. And I, I play guitar and I'll sing. And um, and so he introduced me to this uh, character named Patrick Finn. And at the time, Pat Finn was working at a print shop of some sort in Petaluma. And he had a little apartment there. And he had uh, come up from Los Angeles after traveling uh, to and from Buffalo a couple times, I think it's His father lived in Buffalo, his mother lived in Petaluma, and he had been uh, journeying and living in and out of Los Angeles. Uh, He went to music school there, I think, and I think he worked at Tower Records there and tried to plan some bands. And I think at the time, uh, from what I remember, Pat told me that he had brought his friend, another guy named Patrick, from Buffalo to Los Angeles And this other Patrick, Patrick Wilson, was still living in Los Angeles, though Patrick Finn had left Los Angeles. It was just a little bit hard on the nerves for us, simple country bumpkin types. (laughs) And, you know, come back to Northern California to get some, you know, just a lower cost of living, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he introduced me to Patrick Wilson on the phone. And, um, and Patrick Wilson said, yeah, you should, uh, consider moving down here and just see if you like it. You can stay with us. I'm, I have a couple roommates, but there's room on the, you know, sort of dining room floor or on the couch. And, um, he had just finished, um, Patrick Wilson had just finished, uh, a project that he and Rivers had done that um, was a little power trio, an amazing band, by the way, um, (laughs) called Fuzz. The bass player's name was uh, Scotty. And we had a nice conversation or two on the phone, and he was very friendly, as he always has been and always is, and just said, yeah, you should come check it out, see if you like it. And so I didn't have a car, um, but Pat Finn did. And I said that I somehow convinced Pat Finn, or he convinced me, that he should drive me down there. (laughs) And then he would join us, and Patrick Wilson and Patrick Finn and I would form a band. It was really going to be Pat Finn's band because he was sort of the leader, if you will. He was the one who was taking the position of, like, it's my band, I'm getting it together, we're going to play my songs, I'm going to be a singer. Et cetera. And, and I had, you know, intentions of my own, but I was like, yeah, okay. You know, that's just how it works in, in bands so that start up. It's like, well, who's the singer? Well, I don't know whoever steps up to the microphone and sings in key the best and writes the best lyrics, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So we went down there and, um, he dropped me off in front of this house on Genesee Ave down by Television City. And, um, I had all my stuff in a box and a couple guitars and an amp and and I knocked on the door and, and Pat Finn, he, he literally dropped me off and left. I don't know where he had to go or what he had to do, but he went and did some other stuff. I don't know, you know, he was in a hurry at that point for some reason. So we didn't all stand in the same room at that point. It took a while before all of us were there together, but I walked into this apartment and it was an upstairs flat. And Matt, uh, Sharp had the master bedroom in the back. It was his place and rivers and Pat Wilson were sharing a single bedroom, um, off the kitchen. And I was in the living room and, um, and there it was the four of us together for the first time. And it was awkward, but lovely and fun. And, um, a lot of you know just sort of personal discovery, you know meeting each other, and you know we're all we're all kids, and I think I was nineteen at the time, so I was pretty young.
0: That's crazy that you even did that at nineteen. That's like like to just go away to live in a house with or in a par- a tiny apartment with dudes that you don't know <laughs> in the in the living room. <laughs> In Los Angeles. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm sure everybody dreams of that, you know, move to Los Angeles and follow your dreams of being in a band. And, but it's, it's cool that, that you did it, you know?
1: Well, this was before the internet, right? You had to have a phone call with somebody. You couldn't email them or you had to write a letter. Those were the only ways you could communicate with somebody in a different city. Yeah. And so... It was it was personable, it was it was warm, and, and I think to Patrick Wilson's credit, you know I mean he understood because he had done it. Mm-hmm. Right? And Rivers understood because he had done it, and Matt understood because he had done it, and Pat Finn understood because we were all you know, birds of a feather in that way, kind of in the same tribe, if you will, whether we intended to be or not, but we had flocked together. Knowingly and unknowingly, to a certain extent, and so um, there was a camaraderie because of that. And um,
0: well, because you kind of had all like that's all you had was each other.
1: Yeah, and everybody's just following their heart. They're they're going against what the you know the college counts career counselors or the art you know the the hardcore you know academics are telling you, which is, Oh, get a, you know, get a good degree or get a trade, get a good job and then go and, and, and follow your passion and have a nice hobby or whatever. And and everybody in this group is saying, no, we're going to actually try to figure it out and do it.
0: Try to do it.
1: Try to do it. Right. And that's fun. And I think, you know, people who are doing that with their lives, you know, that's, that's important. You know, if you know somebody who's an artist like that, who's passionate, it's like whether they, you know, go and make something of themselves or not, like that person deserves some, some moral support or better because the, the world needs art.
0: I agree. It's very important.
1: People need that because a lot of people do go and just get the normal job. And then it's like, well, okay.
0: (laughs) Now what? Or, you know, I hate this.
1: Right? They're waiting for the, the next album or the, the, or the sports or whatever it is that they need to distract themselves from their humdrum. drum. So anyways, back to the story, I guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> so let's see here. So we're living there on Genesee and Matt says, I'm leaving. I'm, I need to go to Northern California because this place is making me crazy or whatever his story was. And he went on kind of a sabbatical and, um, And Pat said to me, go to this building in in Westwood and ask for a job. It's where I work. It's where Matt and I have been working. We sell dog shampoo on on the phone to kennels and (laughs) places that wash dogs. And uh, it's good pay. And I'll vouch for you. You'll get a job. Who knows how long it'll last, but just go and try it. And that was great. And so I got this job and he let me ride his bike to work and he and and Matt would ride together in Matt's car and um it was hilarious i mean it was like this you know we're selling dog shampoo to like cold calling people at kennels and it was it was horrible it was one of the most like okay this is why you're following your heart and playing <laughs> in a band like i would call these people these poor people who had been washing dogs in flea bath shampoo that apparently uh, the technology used in the shampoo was the same technology that's for nerve gas and it kills the fleas. It's very mild, but it is the same stuff. And um, and it was causing cancer.
0: Oh my God.
1: After, you know, 20 years of having a dog, um, you know, shampoo, you know, uh, salon. These people are sick. And so you, and the other side effects from using the shampoo is to make them very cranky. So you're calling them up to say, Hey, good news. We got the new dog shampoo that's made with orange peel and it's much milder on you and the dog, but it still gets rid of the fleas. And they're like, Yeah, does it not cause cancer and irritability? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, that's, and they're like, yeah, well, the old stuff I've been buying all these years does. And they were angry and they were hurt and they were, upset. and it was, it was like, wow, the weaponization of dog shampoo, right? And, and it was, it was a That's very, crazy. yeah, it was, it was just a clear sign to like go and play more music.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, my first job it was like Panda Express. So I, I get it. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this, you know. No offense if you work at Panda, but yeah. You know, it's just not my deal.
1: <laughs> want junk food, that's a fantastic option.
0: At least you were doing, you know, a service by selling healthy shampoo. <laughs>
1: right. I don't know. In any case, <laughs> um, so Matt decides to split. He's going to leave LA and and Pat says to me, "Let's move to West LA." I want to stay close to rivers. Um, Let's find a place in West LA and wherever he, he'll land with us and then he'll get his own place. And during this time I got to be a fly on the wall in their bedroom, their one bedroom that they were sharing, the two of them. And, you know, looking back on it, as far as, you know, the history of this band goes, that, was that was that was the, the genesis of, of Weezer was those two playing in Fuzz and being roommates and then Fuzz ending and then them continuing on and saying you know what there's something here between the two of us Rivers and Pat and they knew it and they worked well together they lived well together and they were kind to each other. And they respected each other. And it was obvious. And I I was too young to understand what was going on at the time. I'm just some kid with a guitar who's like, yeah, let's, I don't know. Yeah. And they had a rehearsal studio out in the Valley, out in North Hollywood, one of those countless, you know, cinder block rooms. And it was a big room and it sounded really good. And Rivers had made, an excellent recording with limited technology of fuzz there. And, um, those tapes are awesome. That's a great, like, I mean, those records would still stand up today. In my opinion, they're really good. So I got to go out there with Pat and with the other Pat and play. And that was really fun.
0: And this is for Pat Finn's project.
1: Yes. Okay. which at the time was called the wrong sausage. <laughs> and I think that was an allusion to, I think Pat may have been dabbling in the idea of, I think one of his base teachers had maybe turned him on to the idea of, um, you know, another faith besides Christianity, Judaism, I think it was Islam. And I think uh, Pat was kind of goofing on the idea of like, Oh, you don't want to eat the wrong sausage. And I think it also had like a double entendre. Mm -hmm. It was a cute name. (laughs) And so we were jamming on some of his riffs. The songs weren't really there, but we wanted to do it and we wanted to support him. And so we, so Pat and I, Pat Wilson and I showed up and we, we tried that. And then he left, he went back to Northern California as well because he had to get his affairs in order before he could move to LA. And then the idea was that now that Matt was leaving and Rivers was going to transfer from LA city college in Hollywood, I think to Santa Monica college, we all had to kind of migrate to the West side and none of us had cars after after, once Pat was back in Northern California and Matt was gone, uh, rivers, Patrick and I, not, none of us had vehicles,
0: which is crazy in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, everything was like, a lot simpler and easier than.
1: I mean, you can still take the, the RTD is, is a fine institution. It still works. It's, uh, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. I don't know that if, like a lot of people take the buses anymore. I'm sure they do, but I don't know.
1: Working class people and struggling artists
0: and <laughs> students. <laughs> yes.
1: Which are the same people, right? Sometimes. Yes. All right. So I'm over there. Uh, I get with uh, one of these sort of, it's not a roommate finder service. It's a um, real estate service that specializes in placing rental tenants with available apartments. I had decent credit. So it was easy, you know, thankfully to find this place. And between, because we both had jobs at the time, uh, we found this little two bedroom apartment on Stoner Avenue in Los Angeles. Uh, off of Santa Monica. If anybody's want, if anybody in LA is wondering, you can drive right by. I think it's 1711 is the, is the apartment number if it's still there. <laughs> or the uh, building number. And it was right out front. And so we get this place and River stays for a few nights and he quickly found his own place. He found like a, you know, a little back room somewhere nearby. And he's off to his, that was like a summer is ending and, um, of 91. And he's starting i think I don't know if he went to a summer session in West Al El- in Santa Monica College or started in the fall, but he's you know well on his way towards transferring to being a two year community college and um and shortly thereafter, I think he had a um you know like a scholarship to go to u c Berkeley based on his his skills as a writer and his writing at that time just, you know, it was beautiful. It was lovely to read anything he wrote. And uh it was enchanting, truly. I remember it, you know, made an impression. And so I'm realizing like, wow, here's there's some really talented people here. These two guys are really talented and they are gonna keep playing music together. And sure enough, once we get the apartment set up on Stoner Ave, um Pat and I set up kind of a little home recording studio. And at this point, Pat Finn comes back and then his friend Carl comes and joins us. Also from Buffalo, the three of them, Pat, Pat, and Carl all knew each other from Buffalo. And so we set up this little recording, home recording studio, very rudimentary, but effective. Mm-hmm. And um, shortly thereafter, Pat Wilson loses his job, but in a very creative way. I think he somehow got like unemployment so he could, you know, stay at home and still have an income. And I kept working. I I lost my job at the the dog shampoo place. I think they were, you know, they changed direction or whatever happened. And um, then I got a job at an Italian restaurant as a cook, which was really fun and challenging. And I, I was able to work a lot and make enough money to pay the rent, even if there was a deficit on anybody else's part in the place, which was common. (laughs)
0: <laughs> who everybody or a specific person
1: at times everybody but it didn't matter you know it was for it was like there was this feeling of like the greater good and um
0: so were you like close at this time like were you did you have like a strong bond all of you as friends yeah I mean,
1: mean you gotta remember like we're dealing with people who are artists in the making right like they're creative types and they haven't they're so they're some of them are frustrated artists some of them are struggling artists some of them are really focused struggling artists you know types um i would put rivers under the focused i would put pat wilson also under the focused. for me and for pat finn i would put us more under the struggling less focused I focused on, I just, you know, it, at that point it was like, well, we're here and Pat Wilson and, and Rivers are, are they're, in a, they're in a zone and they're creating music and I knew something good was coming of that and Pat had kind of told me like, yeah, just hang out and if this works with Rivers, then, you know, we'll, he'll need another guitar player. And Rivers had kind of told me the same thing, like, yeah, um, let's, we're going to try to do a two guitar band and, uh, you're welcome to try and, and be the other guitarist. And I was like, okay. And I was like, can I write with you? And he was like, I don't know. Can you? And, you know, and I kind of took that as like a, wow, I don't know. I, you know, and so I'll try. And so I just watched him and Pat in their process as it was evolving and tried to mimic them and learn from them and emulate them. And, and it, and it worked a little bit here and there for me to contribute. And at this point, Rivers was really um, just getting his, his game on. He was really, you know, he had been in several, he had been in more bands than anybody else in the group, in the little enclave. And he had, And he was woodshedding. He was really figuring it out. And it was interesting to watch. It was fascinating to see it happen. And and we all knew it was fascinating intuitively. And I think we kind of knew it intellectually as well. But you know, when you're in the midst of watching something like that happen, you and you don't you have no concept of where it will go. It's just, it's just magical in a way that is innocent, free of, you know, where art meets commerce. And so we were in that phase where it was just in this little test tube and the world couldn't hurt it.
0: Yeah. To just, you know, be young. And I mean, I wasn't a musician, but I remember just being young and innocent and having fun and just in the moment, like living your life. And, you know, I have fond memories of that time in my life. And it sounds like you like feel the same way. Like, it's just, you know, it, it, like magical, like you said. Yeah. There's
1: just this purity and this innocence that is, is lovely. You know, it's so in any case, um, rivers came to me at one point and said, I need work. I need extra money. You've got a job at the Italian restaurant. Do you think they have any openings? And I said, absolutely. I think they could use you. Um, why don't you come in and I'll get you a, a an interview to see if you want to be the um, dishwasher slash uh, you know custodian busboy. It's like great. He came in and he aced the interview and he started right away. And before you know it, I'm in one end of the kitchen cooking the pasta primavera and making the caesar salad or the subway sandwich type thing and he's over at the other end washing the dishes and cleaning everything up so i can use it again to make the bread or the pasta Mm -hmm. the sauce or whatever Mm -hmm. and in between us is a radio playing the local station of our choice and we ultimately decided on the knac and just left it there which was like the time the hard rock radio and you got to hear all of the guns and roses and ACDC and Queen's Reich that you could handle. <laughs> and it got old, but it was what, you know, we just, you know, we were kids. Yeah. And so <laughs> and we would walk home together, and then he would catch the bus or get a ride from Pat Finn back to his place. And one day the format changed. And Nirvana got added to the Smells Like Teen Spirit got added to the station, and it was this this pivotal moment in music history. And Rivers and I were at work together when that happened, and that was really magical for us because we both knew we both knew, we looked at each other. We kind of st- I stopped cooking and he stopped washing dishes, and we looked at each other. It was like, wow! Not only did they add a new song for a new band that we both know knew didn't belong in that format we just we knew that the industry had shifted perspective and that that grunge was gonna happen or whatever you called it in the top 40 and i said to him at the time i said wow you could totally write a song like that and he like slammed down the sponge or whatever he had in his hand a little frustrated i could tell like he was like yeah i totally could (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, yeah, wow. And and we both had this moment of like, oh, he's already writing songs that are not as good as Smells Like Teen Spirit, but different. And, but, you know, like not hair metal. Right. And not synth pop, which wasn't really happening then anyways. It was like you were either rap, country, Hard rock or heavy metal, like Metallica, Black Album was huge at this point, and then all of a sudden, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Dinosaur Jr., and it's an alternate. You know, Nine Inch Nails yeah. started happening too, and then you had Smashing Pumpkins, right? And
0: like it took a one eighty, like rock music totally just like stopped at one point and changed. Into a new direction. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, like, I'm sure the guys in Poison and Rat, like, got on the phone with their manager one day. And it was like, yeah, I'm sorry, man. We just can't get Live Nation or the equi- You know, Ticketmaster won't take our call anymore mm-hmm. the same way, right? And it changed. Yeah. And so we both saw that happen, like, at the radio in Los Angeles. And, again, there was no iTunes there was no spot of, There was none of that. Didn't exist. So there was the, only the radio. <laughs> there was the record store, and there was the nightclub or the arena. That or, that was it, and, or your garage. That was it, right? The music, or the recording studio. If you wanted a job in the recording studio business, which Rivers had done, he had worked in recording studios and been a, an engineer, and he had done really good work. But that's that's for another. Ooh. I mean, different story. <laughs> So, at that point, the songs really started to come, and you, and, and you started to hear things like "The World Is Turned and Left Me Here," which was a collaboration between Pat and Rivers, and I played the acoustic part. And then my name is Jonas, of course, which is where I came up with a little idea, and Pat took it and completed all the you know ninety percent of the music, and then Rivers did all the song, all the lyrics and melody an arrangement basically. Um, and you had songs like let's sew our pants together and paper face and all of these songs that did not make it onto the blue album that are all amazing and fun and interesting. And, um, and rivers was just really in this prolific, like I'm going to just, I mean, he must've been writing like, you know, a song a day at this point. Cause there were probably like 50 songs, you know, by the end of 1991 big pile of songs. Yeah. That's crazy. And that's what it takes. You know, you have to, and he knew that he knew that you have to stock, you have to get out all the songs that you have to write in order to start writing the ones that you want to write Mm -hmm. as an artist. I think he just kind of had figured that out at that point and, and had the time and energy and creative space to do it. And he was going to school most of the time and reading a lot and able to do like yoga if he wanted it to, or, you know, go to Mexico on a retreat if he needed to, or whatever, just to get his head out of, you know, the routine and be in the creative space. He was really cultivating a a dedicated creative space in his mind and in his, in his life. And it was wonderful to, to see that. It was just like, how lucky, you know, to watch that happen. So one day we were, um, this is, this is a personal story between me and Rivers that I, I'm so like, I still laugh at this because it's so silly. When I was a kid, my, um, I, I have a cousin who lives on the East coast and my cousin's parents are his stepmother, my aunt, my mother's little sister and his father and my aunt and uncle. Uh Kathy and Richard are yogis. They're both like, they, you know, don't just teach yoga. They live on an ashram and like dedicate their lives to it. And, you know, really good people like opening up a new orphanage in India once a year, you know, for years on end. And wow. then, you know, getting it set up and then going back to their lives and, and then teaching, teaching at a school on the ashram. And They would tell me every year, Jason, you have to come. you you know, from when I was like six years old. Your cousin Jordy wants you to be here. His friends want you to be here. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. You gotta come. You gotta come. I was like, oh, I want to go. I, you know, I was kind of shy and scared. Like it's a long way. I'm just a little kid. They're like, please come, please come. And I was like, oh, I should go. And I never went. And they moved from Connecticut to Virginia. I don't know when it was like maybe 1983 or four, 82, three or four. And they stopped asking me to come as much at that point. Everybody was becoming a teenager, but they had this group of kids in their school that they were just, there was just this magic going on during this period. And so one day back in LA, Rivers and I are walking home from uh Giuliani's Italian grocery and grill or whatever it was restaurant. We're walking home from work and I'm like, Hey, tell me about your, you know, your family and your friends and your life back in Connecticut. Cause at this point I'm getting really homesick for Northern California. working like too much, not making enough music, not making enough money, the struggling artist lifestyle. And he's like, Oh yeah. It's like, I, he's like, I, have all kinds of friends from high school and stuff and good people. And he's talking about Adam and Justin and people who had moved to Los Angeles with him and played in bands. And then he goes further back and he talks about, he says, but the people who I really, really miss the most are people who I uh, lived on an ashram with, you know what an ashram is. And I'm like, yeah, I know what an ashram is. He's like, huh, how do you know what an ashram is? And I said, well, my aunt and uncle live on an ashram. Oh, okay. And he says, yeah. So I lived on this ashram with my family and I went to school there. And it was from when I was a very young kid, like preschool and these people, and, you know, he just sang their praises in a way that, you know, I I don't think I can overstate. It was, it was lovely how he described them. It was truly beautiful. And one of his very best friends was this kid, and and all of them had Sanskrit names in his story. I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I I know people like that and they kind of fit the same description except they live in their ashrams in Virginia. And he's like, that's really weird. He's like, well, it can't be the same people, but the the people that I, the, the reason I'm so sad is because they moved when I was like, you know, I had to go to normal school after this whole primary school experience and they moved from Connecticut to Virginia And we kind of look at each other like, why do we keep talking about an ashram in Virginia? This is weird. And then we make the connection. And he's like, well, what are their... I'm like, well, it's my aunt and uncle, Kathy and Richard, and my cousin, Jordy. And his eyes get really big. And he says, what are their Sanskrit names? And I tell him, and it's the same people. And it was like creepy because we hadn't planned on meeting in Los Angeles like this, but These were, this was the kid that my aunt was saying, you've got to come to meet Rivers and his brother leaves and, you know, all these other kids that he grew up with there. And we finally, and we met after all, we met after all.
0: That is crazy.
1: It was neat. And so, um, it
0: was meant to be.
1: Just a nice synchronicity, you know, just like a nice sort of like handshake from the universe. Like, okay, well, yeah, somebody meant it to be. We did, though we didn't understand, you know, what we were getting into in in some ways. But so that for me, that has always felt really special and always will. You know, I, I like him as a person. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met and one of the most talented people I've ever met and and a good friend and we have almost family in common but just friends you know community we have community in common from before mm-hmm. we knew each other and that's nice that's it's very reassuring about the goodness of the world where it's available so anyways so it's the end of 1991 big pile of fresh raw new weezer songs say it ain't so gets written at this point and it's like oh wow wow that's really good and my name is jonas is like you know we're just like oh my god this is so fun these songs are gonna be so fun to play as a band and we're waiting and waiting and waiting to play as a band and and then rivers at one point says well we need a bass player And, and, and pat says we need a bass player and the obvious choice had been Pat Finn at this point and we had tried it as his band with him as the singer and Rivers as the side guitar, as the lead guitar player and me as the backup guitar player. And it it didn't work. It just didn't work. We weren't ready. Pat wasn't ready to, to you know, really express himself, I think, at that point. Which which he has done very successfully since then. He's played in Pat Finn's played in a lot of really cool bands up in the Portland, Oregon area. He's an amazing musician. I think there's the best is yet to come from him in terms of songwriting and you know recording and musical arts. He's got a lot to offer, but you know Rivers was building his power as a songwriter and as a frontman at that point very quietly and in service to his friends as a lead guitar player. And so then when it was time for him to step out front for whatever reason, we just I think Pat Finn just was, I think he just needed to go do his own thing. He didn't want, I don't think he wanted to be the side bass player. He wanted to be the lead singer bass player. And so he needed to either do that or something else. And I don't know exactly because
0: do it with other people maybe. Well, honestly, Rachel, all of this type of
1: stuff was kind of above my pay grade at the time. And there was no pay, (laughs) but I didn't make any decisions about who was or wasn't in the band ever. You know, I just was showing up until I wasn't showing up. So they called in Matt and I had, quit my job at the restaurant around christmas and and left town i needed a break and so i went to northern california and i had a little you know getaway and and i remember rivers coming up to say hey we need you don't don't give up we need, we want you to stay in with me and pat and we want to bring Matt in and try this. We've we're almost ready. I almost felt like uh the workers are going home was a reference to that because I left I was pl- I was planning my exit right around the time that song was written. And um so at one point I decide, well, I'll give it another shot. He's he's convinced me to stick around. I will.
0: Was it just loneliness? Or being young and not knowing what you wanted to do yet? Or what do you think was like so hard for you at that time?
1: I think the stress of maybe kind of being like the, you know, in that apartment on Stoner Avenue, the primary breadwinner for this little group of lost boys, you know, kind of holding it down financially to a certain extent more than, you know, I think like Carl was always, solvent and able to cover his nut pat finn had a time when he couldn't and and we carried him like friends will do for each other and there and i think some resentment built up there and pat wilson was also running out of money he kept getting extensions on i think he was getting unemployment at the time and it wasn't enough but it was something and he contributed and rivers lived on his own he was autonomous he didn't have you know he didn't have the drama And then he and Matt got a place together and that changed the dynamic a lot. And that was the Amherst house. And that was really, that became like the the gravity was there. And I, I gave up the stoner. The guys stayed at the stoner Avenue place when I left and went to Northern California. I was just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I need a break. I'm not going to work anymore. If I'm going to be in LA, I'm either going to just do odd jobs for money and couch trip, or find a girlfriend to support me or something, but I'm not gonna. If I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna play music. I'm not gonna be the guy who works forty plus fifty. Plus.
0: For for you guys to play music.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I needed to make. I, and I promised myself that if I came back, I would not have a full time job. And sure enough, the opportunity to just devote myself to the band would take precedence. Because why else was I there? And Rivers had convinced me, like, you'll be playing in the band. We'll be playing shows. I promise we'll play shows this year, this spring. Like, you know, and and he did it. He he promised that and it started to happen. And so Pat Finn and Carl got an apartment in Hollywood and they moved out of the Stoner Avenue place. And the and then I lived in the Stoner Avenue place with, with other guys and nobody had any money and it, it really started to go downhill after a while. And then eventually um, Pat Wilson and I, who we had signed the lease together, we both kind of looked at each other and it was like, okay, the, you know, the clock is ticking down here. We don't want to get evicted. We need to just end this relationship with the, the landlord and get out. And so I remember like, you know, filling up the dumpster in the parking lot with all of this junk that was in all the beds and all of the furniture and all of the whatever that was in this place. Cause it was like, I'm just going to walk away, like light it on fire and walk away because we didn't want our credit to get ruined and all that. And um, so kind of scattered these lost boys in the wake of everybody, you know, leaving and Weezer beginning. And I think I kind of couch tripped with, pat pat finn and carl for a while and pat wilson really got like resourceful and like his level of dedication to this band cannot be overstated pat wilson i believe at at one point i don't know for how long he rented a garage that was just like wood with like a single like hanging light bulb down by Santa Monica and, and lived there so that he could be close to the Amherst house so he could show up for rehearsal. And then you got to remember, like Rivers was still in school and his schedule would change every three or four months when a semester or a quarter would end. So if you had a job that worked for this semester around that schedule to make it to rehearsals, it was not going to work for the next semester because his schedule would change. His classes were not, it wasn't like, oh, well, yeah, you're always going to have class at that time of day or those days. So you had to work around a community college student schedule in order to be in the band. And the way I think it worked for Matt was he just like took a loan from his dad or something then sold his car. He had a cool, he had a hot rod. He had like a sports car, a Mazda RX-7, which was a really fancy car back then. He sold it to pay his rent for a while he sold his synthesizers that he had bought you know this is pre-rentals mind you and he had this really expensive Kurzweil synthesizer that was like the top of the line you know like at the time it was probably like four thousand dollars he sold that you know and so we're whittling it down to like how we you know
0: how are we going to make it?
1: Yeah. At one point, I would—I ran out of food and had no place to live. And I remember wandering through a grocery store with a shopping cart and following the security guard. And as he would turn the corner to head back up the next aisle, I would pick the food that I wanted to eat, like some prepackaged sushi or something like that, and open it and eat it and just really slowly and nonchalantly make it through and then not buy anything and walk out. In the middle of the night, if I needed to, I did that a few times. <laughs> and working odd jobs like painting houses or, you know,
0: like whatever.
1: Yeah, whatever. And so we played uh, together in February on Valentine's Day of 1992. And that was amazing. We had, you know, everybody had the 50 songs. So I think we got through like maybe 15 or 16 of them. And we're all just looking at each other like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be so great. These songs are so good. We're so good. We're not so good, but we (laughs) believed it. We We believed it.
0: You were probably pretty good.
1: No, we were, we were terrible, but the songs were good. Some of the songs were really good. Some of the songs were good. Some of the songs were just okay. I was terrible. Matt was terrible. Pat was fine. Rivers was okay. His voice was, he wasn't ready vocally. He was not the, like the singer he is today. Right. Like he, I don't think we could have done Africa. Right. <laughs> so then it was time to get a show. And that was really difficult. That was a really difficult thing to do. We And eventually he calls and he's like, we got a show tonight. I'm like, oh great. Finally, Jeez, it's taking forever. And it was playing. We were going to play after Keanu Reeves' band, Dogstar, at a club called Raji's, which no longer exists because it was destroyed in the earthquake of 1994. Yeah. Yeah. January 94. That place fell down. And so Dogstar plays and plays and plays, and the place is filled with every girl in Hollywood. <laughs> then Dogstar finishes playing and it's our turn to get up and play and everyone leaves. And I think it's probably like one 30 in the morning when we hit the stage. And it was just our friend, you know, our real friends, like real friends of the band stayed to watch people who were also musicians and understood how hard it was to get a gig and get a band together and play a show, let alone sustain it, you know? And so, Nothing happened, of course. And then we got, um, there was a club in Hollywood at the time called the Coconut Teaser and, uh, at Sunset and Laurel Canyon.
0: I have been there.
1: (laughs) And, and somehow Rivers convinced the person who booked this teeny little club on the side called the 8121 club, which was like a little, you know, efficiency apartment disguised as a nightclub. Uh, where they would have acoustic artists play. And at this time, I, generally speaking, played acoustic guitar. And I didn't play, it. there was not an ele- a second electric guitar. There was an acoustic guitar, electric guitar, bass, and drums. And okay. so we somehow could play these acoustic gigs because there was always going to be at least one acoustic guitar on stage. And so Rivers got them to call it Weezer at the teaser. <laughs> And I remember there was a review in the um, LA Weekly and somebody was like uh, goofing around on the name of the band, like Wheezy, like from, uh, was it Good Times? There was a character named Wheezy in Good Times. It was like, no, it's not Wheezy, it's Weezer. Weezer." (laughs) And the face of the Hollywood nightclub scene was changing dramatically at this point because the hair bands were not getting the gigs and you had these hip cool bands were getting gigs and getting showcases. And so then we started getting better gigs and we started playing better. And there was a show that we played at a place called club lingerie, which I think is on sunset Boulevard. And it was a Monday night free showcase where a types would go and see bands play. And some word got out there and we played an acoustic gig at a place called uh, Genghis Cohen, at like Genghis Khan and Leonard Cohen, and that was where um, we met some people at a record label called Restless Records, and they were like, and I remember the president came up and somehow Rivers had been talking with them on the side, or Matt had, and and the guy basically announced it, Joe Joe Regis, and he said, I want to make this record with you guys, and said it to the whole band out. In front of everybody, and he was there early, and it was like, "Oh fuck, this is gonna happen." And Pat and I were like, "Let's take it. Let's take the deal. Who cares if it's only thirty thousand bucks? We'll make a record, and then they have to put it out. Yeah, and that's good. That would be good to only spend that much money." But Rivers and 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 Matt, cooler heads prevailed. Let's just say cooler heads prevailed. And at this time, I remember Matt was reading the book by Donald Passman, who gets that book uh, "Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business," which I recommend. It gets reissued every year or every time there's like a new way to do things. And he, I remember coming into the Amherst house a couple times, and he's laying on the couch and getting deeper and deeper into that book. And they got to the section where you have to create a team to build your team as, a, as an artist, and the team is the manager and the lawyer and the booking agent and the business and they realized that there was no money so getting a manager or a business manager wasn't going to make a lick of difference because we had no clout because we had no income and getting a booking agent wasn't going to matter because we were just going to play shows in LA until we got a record deal and so that left getting a lawyer and so then we played I think it was when we played at club lingerie that the the A&R guy, Randy from Slash Records. And this is like the people who discovered Faith No More, the germs. Whoa. These guys mm-hmm. wanted to sign Weezer. That would have been cool, right? It was the perfect sort of like, you know, distributed by Warner Brothers, but an indie label in spirit. Mm-hmm. And so Randy wanted to sign the band. And then the president of Slash, Bob Biggs, wanted to sign the band. And so then we asked them, well, what's the next step? And they said, you got to get a lawyer. And we are like, hot dog. Somebody asked us to get a lawyer. And that's what we've been thinking. And that's what we did. And Rivers and Matt went out and found Jamie Young. And I don't know how they, you know, with a late, with an offer in hand from two record labels, one verbal and one like ready to write a deal memo and send it over to your lawyer, get a lawyer. It was like, Oh, okay. So.
0: Jamie, the Jamie from the song, Jamie.
1: The one in the same. <laughs> and so, um, so they get this lawyer and she says, okay, boys, cool your jets we're not going to take either of these offers because neither of them were going to write an offer that was big enough for her to make the kind of money that she needed off the top upfront, front. But she could see that if the band could get the right deal and become a successful band, that it would be good for her career. Right. And she believed in the band. She believed she got it. She, she loved the music. And she liked Rivers. And I think she liked Matt, too. And I, I hadn't met her this way so it didn't matter. You know, I couldn't fuck it. They wouldn't let me fuck it up by bringing me to those meetings, which I probably would have. I was so, like, young and just wild cardish, And, and so she says, all right, you guys got to really practice though, because your next showcase is going to make or break you. And you're either going to get another offer from somebody else I'm not going to tell you who I think it's good, it ought to be or who it's going to be, or you're not. And if you don't, then we're going to take the one with Slash, because that's Warner Brothers. And at least they have this, that, and the other. Whereas Restless didn't have a, um, they were in the process of getting like a back end deal together with some heavy hitters in the film business and in distribution, but they didn't have worldwide distribution in place right now yet. And so somebody, somehow, I guess it was Jamie got the tape to some ANR guy. I guess it was a guy named Tom Zutat's office at Geffen. And Tom had an employee, uh, you know, like a scout in his employee named Todd. And Todd listened to the tape and said, I want to see this thing. And so we set up another show. I don't remember which one it was at that point. It might've been another one at club lingerie. And I think if it was the one at club lingerie, that would make sense because I remember rivers got a real good sound guy named Paul de gray, who still produces record. I think he's working with Matt on, on the new rentals record right now. And Paul de gray is an exceptional engineer.
0: Yes. Uh, his name rings a bell.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're a deep Weezer cut fan, you probably have seen Paul's name here and there on the different tracks. So Paul came and did sound at this gig, and he made it sound good. He did. He pulled some real tricks out of his bag, and I won't really say what they are, but they're hilarious save that for another interview I'd have to confirm (laughs) it with the other guys in the band. So I don't, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but he made us sound good and better than we could on our own. And, um, and the songs were just killing it. I mean, we're playing the sweater song. We're playing, my name is Jonas. We're playing say it ain't so we're playing buddy. Holly was not in the mix yet, but those three songs carried it. And, the world has turned and left me here was good enough. And um only in dreams was magical at this stage. You know, playing it live and the the interplay between, you know, the four of us as it crescendos. It was like it was just an experiment. It was like, yeah, we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't play the same thing every time to- ever. always different. And it was fun. And we and that fun translated, and the audience could watch that. That chemistry happened. So then, sure enough, there's an offer from Geffen, in, and it seems like it took forever, but it took it, you know, as long as it took, like all of, you know, 92 and the first third of 93. And then there's an offer from Geffen Records through Jamie Young's office. And so, um, it was kind of like wow we did it and it and i think the interesting thing was at that point like i i hadn't thought it i hadn't had long enough in my like meditations and and personal work at that point as a you know a 21 year old kid to like think through like well what would happen next what would you do if you got a record deal with geffen records at that point with nirvana like getting played twenty-four-seven and and them on the heels of Guns N' Roses and able to put the music wherever they wanted to at that point if we made a good enough record. My mind wasn't expanded enough to understand like what actually was going to happen next, but it did. And I remember, um, what's his name? Do you know the name of the guy who sang uh, I'm on a Mexican radio?
0: <laughs> R.E.M.? Is it R.E.M.? or
1: The band was Wall of Voodoo. And the the singer-songwriter of Wall of Voodoo was uh, Stan Ridgway, is Stan Ridgway. And we were at Cole Rehearsal in Hollywood one day playing our set, getting ready to try to find a producer to come and and, do the record for us. And we finished playing Say It Ain't So for the umpteenth time. And Stan Ridgway pokes his head in the door and says, that's a, that song's amazing. You guys are really good. And I look across the room at Matt and Matt is just like <laughs> smiling at me so hard. Like, and he's not saying, do you know who that is? He's just, you know, we, we all knew who it was. We all knew who it was because we had seen him around the studio. It was like, wow, that's Stan Ridgeway from Wall of Voodoo. And he unsolicited gave us this really nice compliment.
0: How, are you guys freaking out at this point because you can't believe this is really happening? You know what was really I mean, Yeah.
1: a great question. I think what's really cool about it is that rivers was upping his game at this point. He was rising to the opportunity. Like he was having us do the uh, barbershop quartet rehearsals at this point. He had a piano brought in from SIR rentals. And dropped in the rehearsal studio that we had in Hollywood. We weren't at the house anymore. We all had a place to live. We all had a little bit of money and nobody was struggling anymore. And he wasn't going to go to UC Berkeley on the, you know, Dean's scholarship or whatever the beautiful thing he had in place there was. And he was like, no, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to make an amazing record. This is it. We're doing it. And I think. I think my, in my youth, I think I was a little bit um, cocky at this point. Like, yeah, of course this is happening.
0: We're awesome.
1: It's, yeah, this is my first try in a band. And it's, and, I mean, I hadn't written any of the songs that were going to end up on the record, and I wasn't the lead singer, but I could sing in key and I could show up with a guitar in tune and know how to make the, the guitar amps sound good. And, That was good. That was it. That was good. That was all I had to do because everybody else was doing their part and, you know, it was a team. And at the same time, it was really exciting and really scary and new, completely new experience outside of any of our, you know.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, being in that position and young and it's been really cool, (laughs) a cool feeling.
1: And at the same time, my uh girlfriend was pregnant with my first daughter. And I was like, oh, gosh, that's going to. And I remember like Rivers being kind of like, you're going to leave her, right? Or whatever. And me being like, I don't think so. And him being like, oh, well, the band, you know, and it's going to happen. And what are you doing? Like, you got to stay with us. We're a family. We're a family. Not that. That's going to be your family, but we're the family. And I was like, ah. So that was pulling us in different directions at this point while all of this amazing stuff is happening. That was really hard. I'm sure. And then when Rick Ocasek showed up, it was like, wow, who cares? Who cares what's wrong? Everything's going right let's go to New York and make the record at electric lady studios, you know? And it was like, what could go wrong? So we did. And, you know, like the, I had a, a funny experience the other day. Um, after I talked with, uh, Lindsay, uh, at Yahoo, she's the editor in chief of music at Yahoo. She did that interview about the, you know, me at the 25th, with me at the 25th anniversary of the release of the Blue album. And there was some, there were a few people who worked at electric lady studios who kind of came out of the woodwork for me personally, in like social media, you know, how like people will just reach out to you from way back when. Yeah. And one of the guys who worked at the, at at that studio and was a friend is probably still friends with Rick, um, reached out to me. He's like, Hey, remember me? And, um, we, we had a really nice conversation. And he reminded me of when Rivers and I uh, went and just we were given time alone in the studio upstairs at Electric Lady to work on just the guitar parts and to try to like do like the interplay of uh, only in dreams and like the intro parts on you know my name is Jonas the world is turned the sweater song the other the parts besides just the g- 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 or whee- whee- whee, you know like the the jangly finger picking or you know other than saturated electric lead guitar rivers Cuomo parts mm-hmm. and it was my time to kind of shine or at least to help him shine by saying well let's do it like this and us collaborating and Rick let us go up there and, and work alone in the studio upstairs at Electric Lady. There was a third studio in the attic where Jimi Hendrix used to have his apartment when he lived there, which is super magical for me So I love his work. And the studio, I thought it was called Studio 3 because it was the third room. And so I was referring to it as, oh, yeah, when I was talking with this guy who used to work there, I was... I was talking about it, it as Studio Three, and he was like, "No, it's called Studio C," and that made me laugh so hard because I have a studio in Oakland that's up a flight of stairs, and there's a giant C on the door, and I had completely forgotten, of course. So for me, it was like, "Whoa, that's weird that I have a room upstairs with a C on it that's a recording studio," and I, you know, had almost literally there have been years where I'm like, you know, I don't think about making the Blue album every day. I don't, I used to, (laughs) but I don't anymore. It's been 25, six years. And, but it was funny to, you know, stumble into that for me. And it was very self-indulgent for me to talk about this. I get that, but there's definitely left a mark on my subconscious, I guess is the takeaway, the whole thing, good and bad. The, the, the wins, the losses, the, the, you know, The celebrations, the the opposite of celebrations, the grief.
0: It's such an important time in someone's life, you know, like that, those years are irreplaceable and form who you are as a person, you know, later. And, um, so I mean, there's nothing wrong with thinking about it and, holding it in high regard and
1: oh i i i'm so fond of that record i would be had i not been in the band it's a great record i you know it's one of those records where you can put it on and listen to the whole thing and be like just put it on repeat because it ends quickly and there isn't any wasted space on it
0: right there's not one bad song on there so, how what was it like for you to meet Rick O'Casey? Was it like
1: that was surreal? I mean, he so we're in this little room with no windows in Hollywood that one that Stan Ridgway had popped into, and we're rehearsing there, and we're doing our vocal stuff there, and we're playing the set and trying different things, and um, uh, Todd. The, the guy who signed us says, you guys need to get a real record producer for this record. You realize that, right? Okay. And it was just part of the team that we hadn't thought of record producer. And so, um, names start popping up. And I remember being thinking like, Oh yeah, we should totally get someone like Rick O'Kasic because he did the bad brains record. It's so awesome. I think it's called band in DC or, you know, from that era of like this early, it's like, wow, that's weird that Rico Kasich made that record. Cause it's the craziest hardcore reggae band record. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've ever listened to the, the bad brains, but I recommend it. It's just,
0: no, I'm making a mental note right now.
1: Rico Kasich, the bad brains. If you don't know about it, you need to, <laughs> because it's an amazing, you know, part of his career. And if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have done the Weezer album because that was where he cut his teeth and made a name for himself as a record producer It was really with that record though, of course, I mean, obviously the cars, but you know, he's working with luminaries like Mutt Lang and Glenn Johns and people who have been making hit records, you know, in a beautiful and formulaic way for decades. And so he's got all this institutional knowledge. And somehow his name gets brought up and recommended and suggested and he gets contacted by the record label. And sure enough, he's interested. He likes the tape and he wants to come check out the band. And so he, so they say, yeah, he's, he's flying out and he catches a red eye and he's there like the next day. Like, yeah, he's interested. He'll be here tomorrow. And it was like, Oh my God, that's so cool. And he shows up and. He comes into, we're like warmed up in the studio and he comes in and he just proceeded to make himself as small as possible. Barely said three words like, Hey, I'm just going to
0: sit right here.
1: I don't even think he said sit right here. I think he just (laughs) pulled out his little notepad and started sketching. He's like, and I think he said something like, "I, I just like to, I'm not making notes or anything. I just, I just like to draw.
0: <laughs> That's so cool.
1: <laughs> and so he starts drawing and we start playing and he's smiling and we're smiling and the energy's good. And and I and I can tell Rivers is not uncomfortable, which was really all that all that really mattered at that point, you know, whether you knew it or not. If Rivers was comfortable then we could move forward. If Rivers was uncomfortable, then we need to fig- fix whatever made him uncomfortable so we can move forward. And and that was it. And that's, you know, and rightfully so. And so um he says something like, we finish a song and he says something like, I really like that one. And he doesn't say, you know, do you have more? He doesn't follow it up with, do you have any more like that? Just says, "I really like that. Just so kind, you know, to not be like, what else? Is, you know, not challenging, just respectful, sweet, supportive, like a loving, you know, parent in a way." And um, which is what the band needed at that point, too. You know, so he, right, he became that. He became that loving like uncle I think of him like uncle drossmeyer from the, the nutcracker we ever watched the nutcracker there's this character that comes in and he's this crusty old man he's kind of creepy and scary and rick is not that but uncle drossmeyer is this archetype of like the magician and he has an eye patch and kind of has a little bit of a hobble and he, and he, and he's the one who gives the nutcracker to, I think her name is Maria. And the nutcracker, her fantasy with the nutcracker is the ballet, right? So he, he's this magic, he makes magic toys. And He gives one to his niece and she has this incredible experience, this dream. And so I think of Rick as Uncle Drossmeyer for Weezer, right? kind of handed The band, this magic toy, electric lady studios in New York, right. And the blue album ultimately. And so that's, and when, when we were in New York and they dismissed me when they, you know, they said, Hey, Jason, it's, you know, sorry, but not sorry. You're not the guy. We've got to move on. We're going to replace you. And and rivers, you know, lovingly said like, Hey. When we get back to LA, we'll all be friends. I'm sorry, this isn't working. You know, you're a good musician. It's not it. You just need to, you know, you need to take care of your family. And so
0: it was all because of that, like basically because you weren't, you wouldn't be able to be like 150% dedicated to the band.
1: Well, yeah, I think they wisely knew that at some point, I was going to have to make a choice and it was going to rip me apart. If I chose them over my family and and it, and it was going to rip me apart if I chose my family over them and it would be a liability to them to have somebody who was maybe not all in, in every conceivable way. And so the, the less things outside of, Of the you know their direct control for the for the benefit of the project that they could design into it at this early DNA stage of like well how are we going to present ourselves you know who's going to be in the band as we go and take photos
0: right they don't want you to like go through all that only to like
1: what if some guy was on the front of the album and the tour is happening and then the, that guy's not in the album or in the band anymore. Like, well, where? Right. Who is in this? Like, is this a band or is this, you know, it's like, they didn't want it to be something that seemed just like, Oh, well there, there are some hired guns. And then there's the guy. They wanted it to be a band and
0: yeah. they
1: needed it. They rightfully so. And, you know, Brian had probably paid more dues than it, everybody in Weezer combined. At that point. In Brian. his career. Brian had played, Brian is, I think he's the eldest out of Pat, Matt, Rivers, and me, and Brian. I think Brian is older than any of us, by maybe one year. Not a lot. He's ageless. He's, I don't <laughs> know how he does it. And he, Brian had been playing in bands in Hollywood, in alternative, hip, cool bands longer than anybody in Reezer. Much longer. And it had a record deal that had fallen through. I think he, the band was Carnival Art, but there were other bands besides Carnival. And um, and Brian worked at a recording studio in Los Angeles called Ocean Way, where you know like countless Radiohead records. And I mean, we could name drop here forever about Ocean Way. But Brian worked as a runner at Ocean Way. Uh, after his time in carnival art, before his time in Weezer, I worked at Ocean Way after I finished my work in Chopper One. And so I, th- I find it all too hilarious how we kind of like traded lives in a way because I worked there for like 12 years.
0: Wow. That's a long time to be anywhere.
1: Right. Well, I loved it. It's a great place to work. It's beautiful you know. It's still it's still a recording studio. So anyways, I think it was I think it was the right thing for the band, objectively. So you know, obviously yes. wrong thing for me. It but I was already it was like I was I it was like lesser of two lesser evils, you know, choices about lesser evils is really what was upon them at that point. Like is it a lesser evil for Jason to stay and possibly start missing out on his family and have the temptations of being, you know, a young kid in a band, possibly successful on the road and what could happen to his family then? Or is it a lesser evil for us to just get somebody in here who can take his place now and have him go be with his family? And if he makes that work that or not, that's okay. And so I think it was the right thing to do for everyone involved. It was terribly sad for me. Because I had put time and energy and love and dedication and passion into it. And I wasn't going to quit. But...
0: If they hadn't have had that conversation with you, you would have, like, stuck it out?
1: I would have stayed, of course. Of course. Who would leave that? Right?
0: It probably just would have been like super hard, you know. Oh, it was.
1: It was already. Diff- it was already getting difficult, like just personally wise, because like the tension was up between, you know, Rivers and Matt. On one hand, they were having this conversation about like what were the next steps, and I had become a, a, blo- a you know kind of a, a roadblock in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I think, in order to, you know, you get it. I mean, that I think that's that's pretty microscopic level of personal detail around it all. I you know, I like to really think that along the lines of me wanting to stay and not being willing to you know, they had to excuse me. I wouldn't I wouldn't just say, you know what, I gotta go. I I gotta do this. I gotta do my family instead at that point. And then, you know, sending me at that point, I think that I didn't think it was a kindness at the time, but Boy, am I glad they did did it now. Right. Like having the, you know, the experience I've had with my kids, with my ex-wife, with my wife now, with my daughter, son, daughter, stepson. I didn't know I would have the opportunity to do all that then. I was just a kid. I was a really young dad. So like 22 when Kiefer was born. And I'm grateful that Rivers made that decision on my behalf. Then, even though I wasn't ready to make it myself, mm-hmm. I'm truly grateful, and I've told him as much. And we've laughed about it, and it's it's nice.
0: Well, and what are you going to do? You know, I think that that's just that's life. They made the decision, and. At in the at the end of the day, it was the right the right choice.
1: I, I like to fantasize sometimes, you know, about like, oh, well, what if you know I would have gotten that chance to be you know the one who collaborated with Rivers on this, that, or the other thing in the later years, you know. And who knows? That might still happen someday. I'm not like counting, you know, the minutes or anything like that. I, But him asking me to get up on stage was that, is that? And, you know, the things that he (laughs) said to me in confidence around that were like, oh, wow. Okay. I guess I ought to continue making music now that my kids are all older. And I still, you know, it's not like I'm in a wheelchair.
0: Yeah, you're not old. Why not? I was thinking the same thing. You know, like now is the perfect time to get out there and like tour if you wanted to, because you can you know
1: i'm I'm hoping to um meet the 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 Weezer fans all across the world. I mean, I would like to do that. I think that um we have a lot in common, you know I'm a Weezer fan too
0: so before we go there, do you still hang out and talk to Pat Finn?
1: Yeah. Pat and I, um, you know, we've had our like times where we, you know, lose touch and, you know, but then once social media kind of happened, it was like, Oh wow. Okay. Everybody's within contact, within reach, you know, anybody you want to know is literally there, you can send them a message. And so thankfully he and I were able to actually reconnect recently and, um, And we've always, you know, I think we had like one argument, you know, the whole time we knew each other. So, and that was early on and he handled it well and I handled it well. So yeah, uh, we've, we've stayed friends. We had a really good couple conversations last year and, um, and I told him, I want you to come to, to the Bay area and make a, you know, write a bunch of songs Come to the Bay Area, I'll produce it in my studio. We'll have Darren or Pat or somebody like that, Josh Freeze play drums. right We'll just figure out some amazing drummer and, um, and we'll make that record that we meant that you wanted to make back then. Let's do it.
0: That would be the coolest ever.
1: <laughs> no, I, that's a top, that's like near the top of my list is, is working with him again. And, you know, all that that entails.
0: So do you think that you and like, I think in the interview on Yahoo that you said that you maybe you and Matt were clashing a little bit. Do you think it was because of being young and like different personalities at the time? And
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I don't know Matt that well. You know, um, I love him. I don't think we've always liked each other. And I think that there's, there's distance there that is, that needs tending and, and closing. And I think that, yeah, I, who knows? I mean, he was angry with me that day in a way that I will never forget. And it was almost like, I, I don't know if he was scared or what, but I felt like he wanted to hurt me. Like, you know, some of the things he said, and I was just like, that's. And I remember at one point rivers like stopped the cover. He was like, no, like, that's not why we're here. Just do this. And that was the end. And I left the room, but it was like, it, you know, I think he was just really triggered and really scared. And I don't know if it reminded him of something that he was hurt by in his childhood or, I don't, you know, I could project into it all kinds of stuff. And, and it was, you know, the fact of the matter is that for me it was a primal scene, you know, it was like one of those moments where you're like, God, I might as well be dead because that was that traumatic, you know, and you can't, and you can't put that into words at that moment or even for years after something like that happens. But looking back on it, it was very, scary for him and less so for me. I think I, you know, after Rivers made his speech about like, you know, you'll go back to, we'll all, you'll go back to LA now, you know, we'll all go, we'll meet, we'll be friends back there, blah, blah, blah. And I said something like, I really feel like you guys are making a big mistake. You know, of course I'm going to say something like that, but I could tell Matt was angry. But by what that point, and, and I guess that just left a mark and there have been times when I've been like, Oh yeah, it's fine. Like when we, you know, hung out socially since then, and it's been lovely and it's like, well, there's no reason to bear a grudge or anything like that. And I don't, I just think that it's something that he and I will eventually work out on our, you know, privately and talking about it here is silly because it's private, but people want to know. (laughs) guess. <laughs> uh, or do i just want to talk about it who cares it doesn't matter but you know i mean matt is an important of the the weezer the you know sort of the early and shattered weezer puzzle right the prototype of what weezer <coughs> is now wouldn't exist without matt and i think what he added to it and took away when he left is is, is important. His style on stage and in the studio is, was magnificent. Like I would like to have him play on my records, you know? And I think he's like one of those tortured artist types. It's just like, there's something, there's some pain or some trauma or some stress or some hurt in him that makes him him interesting. Makes him attractive in kind of a shadowy way. I don't know. He's. I can sharp. see that.
0: Yes. <laughs> um. Did you? So you did get to meet Brian when? Like, did you teach him how to play stuff? Or no, was that no, all no, no,
1: no. Brian came in. I'm sure ready to go as a as a as the professional that he is.
0: So you didn't meet him back then. You just kind of met him later. Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. We have friends in common in Los Angeles and, you know, like Brian always peers to me is like, you know, somebody who's like sticking up for the underdog. That's how he's like, for whatever reason, like whenever we've crossed paths, you know, he's like, I've, I've seen him do that. I like that about him.
0: Are you still close with, with Pat, Pat Wilson? I know. Isn't he up North ish?
1: I think Pat lives in Southern California. I saw him when he's
0: he's either North or South of Los Angeles, but I know he's not in LA necessarily. I think it's
1: South. I think it's Orange Orange County, but, um, I saw him when they came through Oakland and they played the Oakland Coliseum, which was amazing. I couldn't go see them play the Oakland Coliseum the last times they came through, but I went this time and, um, It was so fun to hang out with him. It was like, you know, after he and rivers lived in a room alone, you know, just them, Pat and I shared a bedroom for a time as well at our place on stoner. And sitting in the little dressing room, which is about the same dimensions as our old bedroom. And, you know, just being in there together and talking, it was literally like no time had gone by. And we just picked up right where we left off and it, we just had a lot of fun and, and it was hilarious. Josh freeze walked in because he played a couple songs on that set and he was there. He had flown in and, um, and Josh and I knew each other from like I, Josh played in my band before he played in Weasel, a Weezer.
0: Very interesting.
1: I'm a huge Josh freeze fan. And you know, <laughs> I'm so, Josh and I were excited to see each other and it was like, wow, I'm really lucky. I get to hang out in a room with my old roommate superstar, rock drummer, icon, Pat Wilson, and Josh Fries, And we're all just kind of buddies. And that's cool. Like, I feel very grateful and very lucky. That
0: is it like old times? And like, I know for me, getting together with my like high school friends, it really is like old times. Like, you just go right back to being like, like, it's like you never... You know, sometimes it's a month or two, sometimes it's longer for some of them, but every time we get together, it's like yes, like yesterday or like you're just, it's the same.
1: That's right. I mean, anybody you know, that's who you know. It doesn't matter what they're, how they're seen in the public eye or not. That person is to you who they are to you and you are to them who you are to them and nothing can change that except the two of you. you, you know. And it doesn't matter who's got a book deal or who's got a platinum album or who's got a number one or who's getting evicted or, you know, having a heart attack or, you know, good or bad. That's who that person is. And that's, you know, for better or for worse. And then we all just, you know, gotta just try to be a little bit better each time else. What's the point?
0: So you miss them?
1: Oh, yeah, terribly. And it's probably better that way, you know? Like, I don't want to wear out my welcome with them. I would prefer to, you know, see them once in a while and maybe, you know, who knows? Like, in a perfect world, I'll get my music going again and they'll like it and they'll want to participate in something. Or they'll invite me to participate with them in something when it's appropriate. And if not, that's okay, too
0: right like you can just go with the flow and be friends and
1: yeah we have thus far yeah we know how to do that we've been doing that you know all these years
0: of my interview with Mr. Jason Cropper, and I'm still freaking out that I got to meet him and talk to him and hear his story in his own words. Please be sure to listen to episode 50 to hear the rest of the interview, and you get to hear a special song that Jason wrote and recorded, and he is allowing us to premiere it on We Are Weezer. The song is inspired by Weezer, and I'm very excited for us all to hear it. You can find Jason on social media, on Facebook, and on his Instagram at jcrop123. And you can find We Are Weezer on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at We Are Weezer. Check us out on our website, weareweezer.com. Listen, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thank you, Brian, for the sound. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again, Jason, for coming on the show. I am very honored and just so happy that uh, I got a chance to uh, meet him. All right. Adios.
1: We are Weezer, we are Weezer, we are Weezer, and I love you.